When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a podcast about mental health, but without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney and my guest this week is the author, comedian and neuroscientist Dean Burnett. Dean's writing about mental health is really interesting because he has this unique combination of scientific expertise, human insight and humour. On this pod, we usually share personal stuff with guests about how they think and feel. Dean can do all of that, but also set it all in scientific context because he's got a PhD in neuroscience. He actually knows how the brain works. Don't worry, though. Dean's not a Mr. Spock type. He's funny and warm. And I got a lot out of this conversation. I hope you do, too. Dean Burnett, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, everyone. I say. Uh, well, okay. Well, that's made me feel special. Yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> completely devalued my compliment there. Sorry about that. Dean, we talk about mental health obviously on the reset every week. That's what it's about. But you know, the, where where is the line? This is what you're well placed to answer. Where where is the mm. division between the mental health issues that are cultural and social, and those which are actually just hardwired? into us you know are we some of us just born with a propensity to depression anxiety and other um conditions like that um well it's a really interesting question because you know the 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 dividing line is really hard to pin down insofar as you know some would argue there isn't one it it is really (coughs) sorry try that again um a lot of people would argue there isn't one there isn't sort of any clear-cut divide between the true physical and neurological mental health problems and the ones which are to do with social stuff because uh, it's all part of the same tapestry. Like our brain is formed and shaped by the lives we live, the experiences we have. And those are heavily, if not entirely, um, the result of the culture we live in and the the world around us. So there's no real sense in completely separating them. In fact, there's the the disease or medical model of mental health which is used by a lot of psychiatry in the medical field to treat these things. That's come under a lot of fire in recent years for this exact reason, saying oh, when people come in and say, I've got 
depression, anxiety, wherever it is. They say, okay, so let's find the underlying biological cause of this and treat that. And that'll, no, that'll make you better. And it doesn't work that way because there's so much uh, going on. I mean, there is there are plenty of biological and neurological aspects to take into account. And uh, a book I just wrote about, I covered the, the neuroplasticity theory of depression in that rather than the, you know, the, off, the chemical imbalance model, which is kind of outdated now because we've learned so much since then, uh, one of the leading theories now is that depression happens when the parts of our brain which control mood and react to what's going on around us and help change our mood and make us more reactive to things. The, the neurons that do that, they become essentially exhausted, like by constant stress or trauma, whatever it may be, or just internal factors. And they can't change. They can't alter our mood. Because that's one of the more defining aspects of depression. It's not a low mood state specifically, because you can have lots of different types of mood. It's just that your mood doesn't change for like two weeks and upwards. And that's just not what happens normally with moods. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this, those, those parts of the brain are, uh, you know, just they, they, they're on standby. They're not dead, but they're not doing what they should be because they can't respond to stuff. And you get locked in this, uh, you know, low mood, there's low mood states. So they're, knack- they're knackered. There's a part of your brain that's fatigued from being under a, a, a sort of a pressure. Essentially, yeah, that's one of the one of the theories. Like it's all to do with uh, the sort of the fundamental physiological stress response, and mm. like, same thing that happens with anxiety. It's sort of like a different, uh, a different outcome. Uh, depression, if you could, this is very very oversimpli- oversimplified, but it's a useful rule of thumb, I think. Depression is when you know, the parts that <clears throat> regulate mood are constantly over overtaxed by the stress response. You know, people get depression when their lives. Are going and you know, not going well for, for whatever reason. Um, they have a certain amount of stress they can deal with, and sometimes the life puts them push them beyond that and they end up with depression. But alternatively, the parts of the brain which recognize threats and assess for dangers, those are a big part of the stress response. And if there's too much stress, they become sort of like a muscle, they become over overhyped, overworked, and they sort of overrule the more con. Uh, logical parts of the brain and that's when you get anxiety where you know the, the threat detecting the worrying parts of the brain are ramped up or, or amplified too much by constant stress like 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 a big muscle you've worked out constantly without, uh, without even realizing um but that's why you get a lot of um, overlap between stress and <clears throat> anxiety like uh, they're, they're quite comorbid like 30 percent of people i think the stat the stats show that who have anxiety will also have depression or vice versa and um yeah, it's because like one thing we sort of have uncovered is that the the stress response uh, is meant to be like a short term thing in the evolutionary sense. It's like you know danger. How do I deal with this? Uh, well, however you deal with it, within like twenty minutes, it should be gone. Like either you escape the predator or it's eaten you. So yeah, point, which one you got nothing to worry about. So, but the stress response stops happening. But um, but you know, constant chronic stress is something the human brain is sort of like uniquely capable of live in a world where we're constantly worrying about things and triggering a stress response. And sort of like our brains don't have uh, the best ability to deal with that or to cope with it because it, you know, it's not meant to be happening. It's like like a car where you constantly keep your foot on the brake or you know, you're trying to drive anyway and it sort of wears things out faster. So um, yeah, so like there are underlying physiological aspects to take into account, definitely. It's just that these can also result in and have outcomes that are like more social or cultural in nature. Do you think um, that we, is it partly because what we are raised socially and culturally to regard as a threat varies? I mean, you know, an animal 
will see a predator and there'll be something sort of inherent in their nature to understand from an early age as a predator. So I'd better run and hide. Mm. Whereas we grow up in, in, in uh, we all grow up with different values and different families and different experiences. And some of us maybe are overly sensitive or overly, overly um, vigilant for potential problems. Uh, and so that's why some of us will overwork those parts of our brain that, uh, you know, respond to stress because we're seeing too much of it everywhere. And that, that could be almost like a cultural or social construct. Is it, does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think that's why that does happen in that, you know, our worldview. Um, I think one thing is sort of I sort of kind of part of people is that the way we interact with the world is like our brain sort of keeps a mental model of the world like this is how the world works and it's based on my experiences my memories my inclinations my attitudes my expectations my biases my you know my my beliefs my emotions so like it's all a big gestalt which exists in your brain says right this is how i interact with the world and it's so when things you learn new things you add it to that model but when things happen which aren't part of it which contradict it that's where we like we have this dissonance of oh that doesn't that's not what I thought would happen. I, I figured it would be like this, and uh, but no, it, it's it's entirely defined by our experiences. So if you live in a very pampered existence, mm. uh, you know, you can if you live in like a very rich family from a very rich area with like zero crime and no threats or anything, that's so you think that would be a recipe for a nice cushy life, which it probably would be. But then if something does go wrong, uh, you know, so if, you, if your family has a financial hit or something, then that's going to perhaps cause you more stress because it's totally outside your realm of experience and expectations. And as a result, you will be, you know, more stressed by it than someone who lives in poverty. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got no money again. That's just my default state of being. Mm. So yeah, like the, the, the lives we live and the culture we're part of will have a real big impact on how we, uh, you know, what, what stresses out and what doesn't, or like or even the people we interact with, you know, when, and people say, like, you know, prejudice is obviously a big thing to be fought against. But if you're surrounded by a certain type of people from day one, you they become familiar. So anyone who's not part of that sort of, you know, familiar grouping will be not seen as a threat, but like, oh, it's, it's a novel thing. So how do I react to that? And you, know, it, you just react differently to it. And your brain can take that one way or take it the other. So, yeah, no, definitely the... The culture and the, and the society and the, just the community you develop in will have a huge impact on what you consider stressful and what you don't. It's funny, you know, the first ever time I remember going to a GP um, and saying, listen, there's something not right here. Um, I, it, was that, it must have been about maybe 12 years ago and I didn't have the vocabulary at all for explaining how I felt to the doctor, whereas now... I haven't, and I feel like everyone has now, 12 years mm-hmm. on, to, to a huge extent. We, we're able to, we, we've all got the tools to sort of express our, our state of mind and our feelings better. But back then I didn't. So I didn't even have the word anxiety. The way I've described it to a mate was that I just wake up every day shitting myself and I don't know what about, right? <laughs> so I'm just constantly, sh- I can't, I'm constantly <laughs> shitting myself. And I more or less went and said the same thing to the doctor. And he said anxiety. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a better way of, yeah, that's a better <laughs> word to use to people. And, um, and, uh, but what he said to me at the time, because I was still also signed the times back then, was that I was very embarrassed and ashamed uh, to be admitting these feelings because my life seemed 
from the outside looking in probably, you know, perfectly fine and quite privileged. And so he said to me, this doctor, he said, oh, you know, listen, this is what you've got. It's a mental health issue. And I'm probably going to prescribe you something, but don't feel bad about it because it's got nothing to do with you or your life. It's just hardwired into you. you you've been born with it. And I remember at the time I found that quite, <clears throat> com- quite comforting, the idea that this was entirely biological. It had nothing to do with my attitudes or experiences. It was just like some people might be born with a, I don't know, an iron deficiency or what have you, you know. Mm. Um, I look back, though, and I think, actually, that's not the most useful way to look at this stuff, is it? Because if you think, oh, well, it's an inevitability, then, you know, you don't do the other things that are clearly important, like Mm. whether it's therapy or just talking to people or just reflecting upon your feelings can help can't it, uh, alongside the more sort of clinical biological approach? Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, there are lots of different ways in which that can be helpful to see someone, like, when you say, like, this isn't your fault, that is a very valid thing to say. Like, this is mm-hmm. not your responsibility. You are not a, f- a flawed person because it's happened to you. Because there is so much stigma on mental health still. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's getting better. It's, uh, it's better than it was. And <clears throat> it's far less of a, you know, a, career killer to say you have depression now or something like that. So yeah, we're moving in the right direction perhaps, but still a long way to go. So to say to someone, look, this isn't your fault. You've done nothing wrong. It's just bad luck. You know, that's, that's a perfectly valid thing to say. But when I, th- but I think you're right when you say things like it's all hardwired in, like there's nothing you could have done about this. That's not necessarily true either because it's, 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 a, it's a combination of all these factors. You can have a predisposition, a vulnerability, like a certain gene or a certain, chemical makeup of your brain, which will, you know, whereas most people would have like a 1% chance of developing depression in response to these events, you would have like a 7%. Still quite small, still quite a minimal, but still a lot more than without these things. So it's all about relative risk. Um, but then to say it's all to do with your neurology, it's all to do with the genes, that suggests like, again, but that means it's beyond your control and you don't, there's no point in doing anything to help in the social or cultural sense because you know, that won't do anything, which is not the case very often. Like if you have a really stressful job, which is triggering your predisposition to anxiety or depression, that doesn't mean that you know changing the job won't help. Because it clearly could, you know, or making changes in the other factor, like if you're in a bad relationship, these can all you know, these all it's all a big part of the same tapestry of these other things which are impacting your mental health. And while you can't change like the your DNA or the genetic construct of your <clears throat> vestibular system or your, you know, your amygdala being overactive, you can make lifestyle changes which will take the pressure off it or stop, you know, stop the you know, stop the feedback loop of stressful thing makes me more stressed. I respond to it by eating too much, drinking too much, not getting any exercise. I feel more stressed because I'm not healthy. And then stressful thing makes me more stressed. And you know, the, the stress cycle, they call it. So yeah, there's so many different aspects to it, so many different steps that a lot of those will be, uh, you know, environmental, uh, contextual stuff you can do things about. And to say these things are irrelevant, again, that's no, that's discouraging. It demotivates you from making positive changes. How do you think uh, lockdown has uh, affected um, people? Because, uh, you know, obviously there's been a, a lot of focus on people feeling isolated and, and of course, the, the numerous people who have suffered loss and so forth, but also from what you're saying about, you know, the way in which we get stuck in cycles and our brains can become overexhausted by by the relentless stress and anxiety of life, you know, 
the rest that it's kind of imposed upon people. From what you're saying, even from a clinical perspective, just resting our brains as well as our bodies must have a very beneficial effect. It can do, yeah. And I've actually seen a lot of reports and you know, testimonies from people um, during lockdown who have anxiety and depression. have had them for a while. You know, they're, they're well known as having these issues. And a lot of people have found lockdown to be, you know, rather than making the condition worse, has actually made it better or more bearable, more manageable, however you want to describe it. Because like, I've seen like two like, very, very loose summary of anxiety and depression is like anxiety is the constant feeling that the worst is going to happen. Depression is the constant feeling the worst has happened. Mm. And obviously during a global pandemic and lockdown and financial crisis, those are both kind of correct. <laughs> as in, as in, yeah. See, so like, you know, I was right, you know, but you know, having some sort of validation for these, what were previously illogical feelings, that can be, make a big difference to someone's well-being. So you know, I feel depressed about the state of the world. And I should, because look at it, it's awful. Mm. And that can, you know, it sort of brings you in line with society more and you, you don't feel so bad. And the, a lot of the effects of mental health problems are social and cultural in that you know, when you're depressed, you can't interact with your friends. You can't go out. You can't, you know, you have to try and work from home if that's an option. And lockdown makes all these things not only acceptable, but the norm. So, you know, you're... The expression of your disorder, whatever it is, is less marked. So you sort of feel more in tune with other people and you're not being feel as judged and so on and so on. So there's a lot to be said for that as well. But in terms of people like who don't already or didn't already have an existing problem, it does seem to be showing a lot of reports and data showing that people are assumed manifesting mental health traits or mental health problems traits a lot more like people having lower moods or reporting higher stress levels even children and uh, sort of saying that they may have had thoughts like this over the past you know, six months to a year and those are more indicative of signs of depression or signs of anxiety so yeah the stress most people are experiencing because of lockdown is going to be in greatly increased uh, thanks to lockdown but also all the options you have to remove stress sort of de-stress like you you would interact with your friends you would go out and socialize you would go to the pub you'd go traveling you go to the city you just do stuff that you enjoy and lockdown's taken all that away too so it's upped the levels of daily stress and removed our ability to do anything about it so it, it will be a, a great deal more stress to go around and a lot less options to do anything about it during lockdown which will inevitably seriously impact a lot of people's mental health and well-being you touched upon something there where you said, you know, you have to recognise the fact that sometimes circumstances are legitimately, objectively <laughs> bad, and therefore, you know, it is perfectly rational to feel down about that. Totally, uh, now, yeah. I've read, you've written at, uh, some fantastic stuff about the whole live, <laughs> live, love, laugh sort of movement. Yeah. I have views, yes. <laughs> and and, and, and I, I thought it was fantastic stuff you wrote back because it really speaks to me a lot. I think like a lot of people find it quite nauseating, that whole thing. And it, it kind of ties in to an extent with the whole mindfulness movement, which again, I kind of I think there are great things about, but that sort of idea that, well, you know, listen, I've, I've just got this gas bill that's over that's overdue and, and I need to pay it and I can't afford to pay it. And there's only so much I can take of like thinking, yeah, but 
just be present in the moment and recognize how beautiful it is outside. <laughs> is, it, is, is I can see it's sort of one of those things that there's a seed of, of, of something great in that movement, but your feelings are, as I understand it, that it's gone a little bit too far. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, yes, it's clearly been um, hijacked by, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word chances, but I'm thinking it pretty hard. <laughs> Let's go with that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know, there are plenty of people who will see any opportunity to make some money out of things, but it's not even just a financial thing. It's this idea that, you know, you can choose your attitude. You can choose to be happy and therefore you should, regardless of what happens. And it's sort of, um, <clears throat> I go down and mention the, the, the disease model of mental health things. So that was uh, because you know, there's there's not enough um, uh, focus on the wider context and it's all about what's the biology of it all. But one another complaint about that was it takes away the agency from people with mental health problems. Like they turn up and say, well, I've got depression. So, right, you take these pills for four weeks, come and see me afterwards. But then like, you know, I'm in charge, I'm the doctor, you just do as you're told and you'll get better. Which for physical ailments, you know, we don't really know what's going on in our body. We, you know, we, we do that. We say, okay, so this is, these are my, these are my antibiotics, these are my, this is my physiotherapy, whatever it is. You sort of trust the medical professionals because they know what they're doing and you don't necessarily. But when it comes to the workings of our own mind, it doesn't, you know, you can't even get away with that because we can't, you know, like I've got these feelings and these thoughts and, Doctor, take these pills and ignore them. You can't. It's me. It's my own identity, my mind. Mm. So one of the problems was it was taking away too much agency from people with mental disorders, and that was having you know, negative effects, which prolongs the situation. By contrast, by constantly saying you have you know, the, the ability to choose your attitude, you can just smile through it and you'll be fine, or like the only disability is a bad attitude. That goes way too far the other way, saying, yeah, you may have valid real problems uh, which are affecting mental health but it's actually entirely your responsibility to, to not let them affect you so mm. uh you know that's that's on you you know it's entirely down to you so if, if you're it's tantamount to saying if you're unhappy if you've got a problem that's your fault you should you know you should work harder at not having mm. depression which is it's basically a fancy way of saying cheer up mate yeah isn't it which is bit, not yeah. helpful yeah, yeah. Some out of it, but with, with nature backgrounds to make it sort of sort of flowery and things. <laughs> so yeah, it, it is um, again. It, it's been used a lot in the workplace in negative ways, which is um, it happens in 
uh, the NHS a lot of them told that they have a lot of resilience training. So like mm. your job is stressful, so we'll train you to handle stress, which makes a sort of logical sense. But when you've got this resilience training, like, okay, so now we can give you as much stress as we like because you're resilient. Uh, we don't have to employ yeah. better workplace practices or take account of your well-being because you're resilient now. It's a blank check to just pile work on you. And that's the just recipe for bad mental health. Anyway, you place it. I find there's a lot of guilt as well um, that is generated by that that kind of movement, shall we say. I mean, mm. you can look on Instagram where there is a, a huge amount of mental health stuff going on every day. And the same people who are espousing, you know, being kind to yourself will on their next post be saying, you can achieve anything that you want. You can mm. be anyone you want to be. You know, life is full of opportunities and abundance. And I think <clears throat> that is quite a difficult thing for all of us who are struggling day to day with whether it's keeping your head above water or just keeping a smile on your face or raising your kids or any of the other tough things that pretty much everyone has to confront. The idea that also, by the way, there's you can be anything you want to be sort of implies that if you're not perfect and your life isn't exactly how you you would dream or fantasize of it being, that's because you haven't wanted it or tried hard enough. Um, mm. it, it sort of it, it breeds guilt, and guilt I feel is one of the biggest is is one of the biggest engines of the sort of mental health issues we see around us. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's you know, the idea that we have um, it, it it ties into all the status, people's social status. People want to be liked, want to be respected, want to be looked up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a default human instinct. Like we are a hierarchical species, we're a very social species, but we we value the good imp- opinions and impressions of others. We want them to. We want respect. Um, mm-hmm. There's actually been studies like if you're the lowest rung in any particular hierarchy or group. The very, the very sort of bottom of it. Yeah, it's a very stressful thing situation to be in. It's, um, you know, it's genuinely unhealthy because it, it hurts, you know, psychologically to have nobody, uh, you know, to look nobody beneath you. And you know, one way to do to increase your status is to sort of insist that other people are beneath you or to assert yourself in ways which, you know, <clears throat> which can amount to these positive memes things like so it's supposed to something you can choose like you can choose to be whoever you want to be he's like well i know this so i'm telling you this therefore i have helped you therefore i am better therefore i am good it's um you know it's a sort of like i imagine a lot of it must be subconscious and people actually have these thoughts but it is still kind of how it's manifest is like okay i want to prove my superiority i'll do this by sharing this incredible wisdom with you people who pay attention to me and that'll make me feel better and I'm sure, sure it does a lot of the times, but it can also be deeply unhelpful. And like, uh, I think someone has pointed out that it's not an original observation, but you know, like the people who post these things, you could be whoever you want to be, you be whatever you want to be. Like, and the response is, and you chose to be this. Is that <laughs> is, is, is that really what you're trying to tell us here? You know, like, let's look at your life. Like, is this exactly what you want to be doing right now? And mm. So it's part of its deflection, you know, like part of it, they need to believe this. I mean, you see a similar thing where a lot of studies have shown that you know, the couples on Facebook, wherever, who are constantly like, I love my husband, love my wife, look at yeah. us together, aren't we happy? They tend to be the most insecure. So it's almost mm. like a case of fake it till you make it. So it's a psychological defense mechanism to say, yes, one, if I tell the world that this is a, this is the, a fact, 
then that'll make it so. Uh, like, you know, yeah. And um, can work. It can often work. Like I mean, people fake confidence all the time, or you know, it's you have to project what you want uh, out of life. You have to sort of you know walk the walk, talk the talk, as they say. But a lot of this will be you know um, a status boosting thing. Um, and maybe talking about the whole thoughts and prayers stuff. You know, I want to be helpful, but I don't have to do anything. So if I just post mm. this meme saying you can be whatever you want to be, there, I've helped. Now it's up to you. I go <laughs> minimal effort, maximum reward sort of thing. And um, it can it can also be genuine and healthy because the negative parts of life, the negative emotions, they so all seem to think that any any of those are bad. You know, if you're in any way unhappy then you are failing. You can choose not to be unhappy, uh, choose to be, yeah, you can choose to be happy and not to be unhappy. And those are what you should be doing. But happiness shouldn't be our default state. The brain is far more diverse than that. And life isn't like that. It's actually an unhealthy way to live because it just taxes the brain on one side and doesn't let it develop the ability and the skills to process the negative emotions, which we will inevitably experience on the other side. So yeah, it's... um, it did. I think that's why it's called toxic box positivity because it does cause a lot of harm, all told. So, in terms of our aspirations, is just being content or kind of just not happy, but just sort of on an even keel, probably what we should expect of ourselves day to day. Yeah, I think that's a healthy way to look at it. I think it's something like Conan O'Brien said: like, I, I don't want happy; I want steady. I want to be mm. able to, you know. I think it's. When people say, like, oh, I want to live a happy life, I say, yes, I want that. I think everyone wants that, and it's a noble ideal to have. But happy in terms of the averages, you know, if you add up every day of your life, you spend more of them happy than unhappy, that is a great result. Mm. But if you mean I want my every single moment of my existence to be a happy one, that is impractical, unsustainable, and genuinely unhealthy because, you know, it, it can have, you know, it can lead you to weird motivations. So there are some studies which suggest that people who are constantly happy are actually more selfish overall than those who tend to be more miserable. Um, might be an indirect thing, but the reason they are happy all the time is because they put their own needs first above you know, other people's, and that's their priority. So if you have someone who's constantly, well, other people could benefit from this, but I want it, so I'll take it, then that'll make them happy, but that also makes them a selfish person. And so like, just because someone's happy all the time doesn't mean they're nice. That's something <laughs> to, be, to, be, to be aware of. So yeah, I think steady is a much more contentment uh, you know, just a calmness is a, a, perhaps a good, a good way to be. Um, but also, it's not not trying to suppress or deny the negatives because you know they're not pleasant. You try to avoid them, but if they do happen. Uh, trying to say they're not happening that that's that's a serious recipe for disaster. I mean, that's one of the factors I think in why like male suicide rates are as high as they are, and that we are conditioned and told from an early age that men don't show emotions. We have to be stoic. We have to be strong. It doesn't mean just lifting heavy objects. It means suppressing all emotions apart from anger. That's okay because it means fighting. Mm. It's a manly thing to do. So, um, yeah, so this you know, the male tendency to want to suppress emotions means we don't. they don't get processed. They don't get integrated into our you know, wider mental model. And we don't know how to handle them. And they can build up and overwhelm us in the worst possible ways. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said for that. It's uh, they call it in 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 recovery. They call it honouring, or maybe beyond recovery. I don't know. That's when the first time I heard it being used in that way. They said, you know, you got to honour these times. You got to honour feeling bad or mm. sad, or honour yeah. the pain that you've experienced. And 
And funnily enough, as someone who drank too much for a large part of his life, I was sort of like numbing all of that out, suppressing it. And then when you get onto the other side and you're, and you're sober for a few years and you start thinking about why it was that you drank and stuff, you start sort of almost auditing all of the different moments in your life, all of the sad moments, the painful moments, big or small, that you kind of ignored and, and didn't really deal with or, or even acknowledge because you drank it away or some people might deal with it in other ways. But certainly there's a, a multitude of ways that men in particular will distract themselves from actually honouring and accepting what, what has happened. <laughs> well, you know, th- those of us who only come to that realisation quite, you know, in middle age, you have to go through a whole load. You've got a huge backlog. It's like a huge backlog of filing. You Suddenly you're thinking of things that happened in the playground when you're seven years old or whatever. Um so I, I suppose, I mean, what do, do you do with, with your knowledge, your sort of more of a 360 knowledge of all of this stuff from both a, a, a clinical and cultural point of view? What do you do to sort of make sure that you're sort of keeping a, an audit of, of your feelings and, and keeping an eye on yourself? Mm. <clears throat> well, this is actually really, really appropriate at the, at the moment, actually, because this is pretty much what you just said. It's currently the book I'm writing at, at this moment in that... Um, because I've gone through this very recently, like um, I said it publicly, but um, my father passed away from COVID uh, March last year. And uh, no, he's 58, no prior health conditions, one of the earliest deaths in the, in the um, pandemic in this country. And um, wow. I, I've had to deal with it alone in isolation because I couldn't, you know, no family to help me out because of lockdown, no, uh, no, no, ex- no escape, no, <laughs> no outlet. Uh, so yeah. went through a period of, drinking quite a lot as you might imagine but yeah. now i've sort of my, my latest book is sort of part neuroscientific exploration of why these emotions happen to us and part grief diaries and like well now i'm feeling this here's what i'm gonna i'm gonna look into why i'm feeling this because i've got nothing else to do right now i'm gonna sort of explore this and so it's become you know i've, I've done that myself i've audited my oh, i remember this happening and then i used to do this and here's why i did that and i've kind of likened it to before this happened i was kind of it was very helpful to be a neuroscientist dealing with emotional stuff happening. <clears throat> um, I think a degree of insight is kind of handy, like because our emotions are sort of they're very powerful. They're a lot faster than our conscious thoughts because it's a simpler process. It's like, you know, it's the fundamental thing when you react to something negative uh, and then you feel angry or sad or upset. That happens before you sort of process the experience itself. Like, I'm, I'm sad. Why? Oh, because that just happened. Oh, I see. And um, yeah. so it's, it's, it's an ancient, but it's much just more direct system. So um, so like, uh, when I felt these things, I thought, oh, I, I get why I'm feeling this now. Oh, look, that's my limbic system firing up. And you know, so having that awareness um, gave me a better, it felt like it gave me more agency to act on it. And say, like, I'm feeling this. And anyway, I, I sort of, had a reflexive tendency to stop and sort of think, okay, I'm feeling this. Why am I feeling this? Because, oh, okay, good. I, I see now why that's happening. But when it's sort of something as traumatic and enduring as you know, the loss of a parent in such horrible circumstances, it was helpful, but, you know, it, not as much as you'd expect. I liken it to being like a trained mechanic who's trapped in a speeding car on the motorway with no brakes. Um, like I, know, I may know what the problem is. I know why this is happening, or I know what's what's gone wrong, but I can't do anything about it until this till this car stops. I just got to grip grip the wheel, and sort of try to make it through as best I can, and hopefully it'll come to a stop eventually when when the fuel runs out or when I've got some clear road. Um, so like yeah, it's helpful, but it's not protective. It's like 
you've still got to do this. You've still got to work through this because that's who we are. That's, that's how the brain works. It's the, the brain that I've got, which assesses and analyzes these complex feelings from a logical perspective is the same brain, which is churning up all these powerful emotions. And I can't just separate one from the other. Like they've, they've got to work together and they're not really fond of that because that's how the, the brain's evolved in a messy, complex way. So yeah, so it's, it helps being like a Mr. Mr. Insight to this sort of thing, but it's not a preventative. It's not a protective factor in that respect. It helps I, you get through I, it. I suppose you'd hope that long-term it, it is because some people might not acknowledge or honour or audit the, even feelings like grief, the extreme feeling that you've been through for the last year. Hmm. You know, you say you, you drank for a while, but obviously you've made the effort and it must have been a huge effort to sort of actually face these feelings and confront them and, and try to do. And, uh, and like you said, I don't doubt that that meant they just went away, mm. but there'll be lots of people who cope with an extreme emotion like grief by not coping at all, by ignoring and running away. And then it's yeah. going to haunt you for a longer period, presumably. Yeah, totally. I think some people expect that when you're a neuroscientist, it means like you have sort of mastery <laughs> yeah. of your own feelings. Like, so go, like, oh, a, like, like maybe a surgeon or a nurse yes, who's exactly. to sew up their own wound. Exactly. So like deflect that over there. I don't need that. I am Mr. Logic. I'm a Vulcan mm. now. And like, mm. it, it, it just doesn't work that way because um, uh, because it doesn't. You know, that's, Our emotions are actually a big, huge part of our thinking processes and like this idea that there's a lot of blokes saying, well, I'm, I'm just, I just only ever think purely logically and reasonably. Uh, you don't, mate, you, you can't, that is not something we can do. They, uh, yeah. like, you know, um, uh, so, um, so yeah, so, uh, it's not something we can actually, you know, you cannot separate your emotions from your thinking. The brain just simply isn't wired for that. Um, Dean, it's fascinating talking to you. It's a really fresh uh, and fascinating perspective for me as well. And um, uh, and we'll um, I'll be out buying all of the books I don't already own to find out more on your perspective on all of this stuff, and I advise everyone else to do the same. I appreciate that. That's uh, very obviously it's handy for me. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. But yes, I think um, the stuff I've written does seem to go down well. I mean, there's usually a lot of yeah, recommended text ready levels now, and it's um, quoted often in university applications. So I guess I must be having some positive impact out there. So yeah. I'm happy about that, yes. Well, that's fantastic. And long may it continue. And best of luck with the new book. Uh, thanks ever so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Sam. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to my chat with Dean there. One of the big things I took from it is how much pressure we all put on ourselves to feel happy all the time. There's a whole bloody happiness industry out there masquerading as mental health support, which Dean is rightly cynical about. The brain just isn't wired to be happy all the time. It's maybe not even wired to be happy most of the time. My attitude is aim for contentment most of the time, and when happiness does turn up once in a while, treat it as a bonus. Anyway, thanks for listening. As always, please subscribe to the newsletter and pod at samdelaney.substack.com. Tell your mates, be lucky, and don't let the dickheads get you down. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.